I'm Silas Farley. I'm a dancer with New York City Ballet, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Hear the Dance. In this episode, we'll explore Balanchine's ballet Diamonds, the final act of his full-length Jewels. The work premiered in 1967. Jewels begins with Emeralds, to music by Gabrielle Fauré, evoking the French Romantic Ballet. Its original principal ballerinas were Mimi Paul and the inimitable Violette Verdi. Then comes Rubies, set to a syncopated Stravinsky score, first led by the all-American duo of Patricia McBride and Edward Villela, with Patricia Neary as the female soloist. The evening is crowned with diamonds, an homage to the imperial Russian ballet of Balanchine's youth, set to Tchaikovsky's Third Symphony. Its first principal dancers were Jacques D'Amboise and Balanchine's great muse, Suzanne Farrell. It's interesting to note that this wasn't the first time Balanchine had used precious stones as the scheme for a ballet. In 1947, while serving as guest ballet master at the Paris Opera, Balanchine choreographed Le Palais de Cristal, the Crystal Palace. This is the ballet to the music of Georges Bizet that we now know as Symphony in C. For that Paris production, the designer Leonor Fini costumed each of the ballet's four movements in a different jewel tone rubies, sapphires, emeralds, and diamonds. Though there'd been some deliberations that Mr. B's jewels at City Ballet might include a sapphires section to music by Arnold Schoenberg, it was decided that the ballet would be a triptych of emeralds, rubies, and diamonds. And thus Balanchine made the first plotless full-length ballet. Jewels would showcase the expansive stage dimensions of the company's new home theater at Lincoln Center and the brilliance of its costume mistress, Barbara Karinska. This is what Lincoln Kirstein had to say about the ballet. Jewels has been an unequivocal and rapturous success since its introduction. The very title sounds expensive before a step is seen. In this episode, we'll pay particular attention to the ballerina role in Diamonds. We'll hear perspectives on this multifaceted part from City Ballet principles, past and present. In part one, you'll hear me in conversation with Merrill Ashley, who danced the part under Balanchine and now coaches it around the world. And in part two, you'll hear me in conversation with Sarah Mearns, who currently dances the role. Enjoy. Merrill Ashley, welcome back to the Hear the Dance podcast. Thank you. It's great to be back. Meryl, you have a really beautiful way of describing the different moods of the different sections of Jewels, because you've now assisted with stagings of it at the Pennsylvania Ballet and at the Bolshoi. And could you describe the mood, the flavor of emeralds, rubies, and diamonds? Emeralds is the most mysterious. It has a mysterious uh, atmosphere to it and kind of melancholy, too, a little bit. One thing melts into the other. Uh, it's not as dis sharp and distinctive as, as many other bits of choreography. And because it's so green, I think of it as un grass underwater, kind of swaying to and fro. It, it has these unusual undulations, but, but it's, uh, it's constantly moving. And you never know quite what it's going to do. It's also more impressionistic. I mean, it's very French in its feeling. It's, it's like perfume that's kind of indefinable, uh, but beautiful. You know, like impressionist art, it's, 
it's there, you see it, but, but the forms, the edges are blended, the colors are unusual, the, it's just not quite reality. Um, Ruby is, is jazzy and, you know, full of attack and not subtle. It's not subtle, but fun-loving and uh, spirited and, and just great. It's, I loved it. And Diamonds is formal and pure and regal. It's, it's Imperial Russia. I mean, that's what he meant it to be, you know, homage to Imperial Russia. You have to be more refined and more filled with épaulement and beautiful footwork and beautiful port de bras and using your back a lot. But it's formal. It's very formal. Cool, but hot, like a diamond. <laughs> I love fire. it. There's fire there, but it's, but it's, you know, it's also kind of cold. All of the sections you can imagine a, a, a cut stone, the facets of, you know, and what, what you see when you peer into a, the depth of an emerald or, the, or an, uh, a diamond with all its sparkly stuff. It re uh, clearly relates to jewels in that way. And it also has themes of, you know, walking on point and being off balance. And there, there are themes throughout the ballet. It's not just these individual ballets. He tied it together in, in um, vocabulary as well as the idea of jewels. Meryl, you've had a multi-dimensional relationship with jewels. You are one of the few people who can say that you've danced principal parts in all three sections, emeralds, rubies, and diamonds, and you've now staged it both in the U.S. and abroad. How did your jewels journey begin? So I, I really honestly can't remember if I saw jewels before I joined the company in 1967. I joined in the fall of 1967 and the premiere was in the spring of 67. It was a hot ticket um, and, you know, it was hard to get in to see it, but somehow I think I did see it. And um, it certainly was the talk of the ballet school. <laughs> when I joined the company, it was one of the first ballets I learned. I was in the core of Diamonds and I was one of the middle girls, which is the hardest place to be in the shifting lines. And I had a terrible time with it. I couldn't remember the steps because it's all sorts of different balances and they just get confused in my mind. I couldn't stay in line with the shifting lines. I, I just, um, I think the ballet mistress who, as I remember it was Unakai, she was a little fed up with me. And I think the girls next to me were fed up with me, but there were several of us that were new. I wasn't the only new girl in it. It took a long time to, to learn. And Meryl, after dancing in the core of Diamonds, you, then you graduated into the demi-soloist part. And there are four demi-soloist women, two of whom get to do a featured bit in the waltz section at the beginning of the ballet. And did you enjoy dancing that? You know, I have to admit that Diamonds, core, and demis was not among my list of favorites to do. <laughs> I have to admit that. I just, I don't know what it was. A demi-solo steps in the walls felt awkward to me they just I don't know I just didn't it wasn't my favorite role but you know you learn a lot doing things like that <laughs>
And I uh, sort of learned, learned about being in the core and staying in line and watching on either side of me <laughs> yeah. from being in that. And Meryl, the principal part in Diamonds came along at a really critical turning point in your career. It did. It was um, one of the big first principal roles I had that Balanchine gave me. I had done some principal roles in Jacques D'Amboise's ballets, and Balanchine had given me some soloist roles. But this was, first of all, it was a Suzanne Farrell role, which meant, you know, only his favorites did it. And why I got to do it as early as I did, I was still in the court of ballet when I did it, uh, was because um, a lot of the ballerinas were injured. First of all, Suzanne had left the company. Uh, I did it in 1974, and she had left in end of 69, I believe, and didn't come back till 75. So then Kay Mazo started doing it. She was the one that was doing it regularly. Allegra Kent did it too briefly, but Kay was the one that did it majority of the time. And Patty McBride was dancing everything under the sun. So she was really busy. And uh, anyway, Gelsey Kirkland had left the company. Jules takes a lot of principals and there weren't that many people left. All the ballerinas that were likely to do diamonds that he normally would have put in were injured and the others were busy. And so he had to turn to somebody younger and it was me. And uh, that was a huge, huge opportunity for me. Um, and it being Suzanne's role really added to the pressure in my mind anyway, you know, he, uh, it was a, it was a big role and I finished the evening and I had to be good. So there I was, <laughs> young little me. And Meryl, could you speak to that a little bit more, how so much of a dancer's ascent in their career is determined by these uncontrollable realities, like opportunities arising because of injury or because someone retires or this or that, and that people may not even realize how much just fortuitous timing plays into a dancer's rising through the ranks or rising through the rep. It's a huge, huge element in a dancer's career. You know, as horrible as injuries are, they give many people opportunity, other people opportunities. You know, sometimes it's just programming that, that I remember during this era, Patty McBride, normally the ballets that were going on a single program were ballets that only Patty would do. Well, she couldn't do three ballets a night, night after night after night after night. She couldn't. And so Balanchine had to, had to find other people. And it was an era when he was starting to try and cultivate younger dancers and look around at other people. With Suzanne not there, he, his eyes started going everywhere. And he gave lots of people opportunities. Some did well, some he felt it was too soon. He'd wait and give them an opportunity again later. And then an injury, suddenly somebody has to go on. That's how I, I ended up doing rubies. Patty was injured. Sally Leland was injured. Suki wasn't in the company anymore. Gelsey wasn't in the company anymore. Nobody but Sally was even mobile. And he didn't want to cancel rubies. And so he said, okay, Sally, you're going to do the first movement and the last movement, because those are complicated and hard to learn. And Meryl will do the pas de deux. So I learned, I had to dance emeralds that night, but I, I learned the pas de deux during the day, danced emeralds, and then did the, did the performance with Sally doing the opening and the finale and me doing the pas de deux. 
And Meryl, I found something that I think you'll find really interesting. This is the New York Times review from the night that you stepped in to do this one performance of the Ruby's Padada. And the headline said, Sarah Leland and Meryl Ashley step in gallantly for City Ballet's jewels. Oh. <laughs> and and the, the reviewer says, Miss Ashley made her unexpected but thoroughly enjoyable debut in the second movement of Stravinsky's Capriccio for Piano and Orchestra, which accompanies Ruby's, and Miss Leland danced the first and third. Miss Ashley's long, strong gestural force gave a slightly different accent than the piquancy one normally associates with the role, but it was effective. Well, <laughs> I'm glad. Pretty good. Pretty good for the one time you ever did the Ruby's well, One Pineapple. time and not really knowing what, you know, I kind of knew sequences, sequences, but I kept forgetting the order. We had just had Patty on the show talking about rubies, and she was talking about the complexity of the timing and the accents and how it was really important to get all of that in her body to really be able to do the role. So I can only imagine that having to absorb all that information so quickly and then have to put it on the stage immediately was uh, an epic task for you. Yeah, especially since I had to do emeralds. I couldn't use the whole evening. You know, I had to kind of get my brain into emeralds. And then I was tired and racing to change costumes and headpieces and, you know, and suddenly you're out there. It was, um, but I loved it. And Ruby's was always the part I wanted to do. And after that performance, even though I never asked Valentine for anything, I just, I did say, he, he was saying, thank you for doing it, et cetera. And, and I said, oh, Mr. B, I, I just love Ruby's. And, you know, it's the part I've always really wanted to do. And, you know, could I learn it and do the rest of it? And he kind of, he didn't say yes. He didn't say no. He kind of hedged, and uh, it comes. Mm, oh dear, <laughs> I don't. I don't really remember what he said, but it wasn't sure, of course. Uh, and then about a week later, the rehearsal schedule went up, and Ruby's was being taught, and it wasn't being taught to me. <laughs> so I didn't. I never did it anymore. <laughs> Except on gigs. I, I did do it on gigs. <laughs> well, zooming back into Diamonds in the principal part, what, what are your memories from first learning it and those very first rehearsals and that first performance when you stepped into it? Well, I, um, I, I, you know, I can't remember who taught me the role. I remember that I was dancing with Jean-Pierre Bonfou, who was injured at the time, too. And he was, you know, dancing with a, a young, inexperienced dancer is not a partner's dream, I don't think. <laughs> Mr. B did come and help me. At that point in my career, I was just trying to cope with the steps, learn the steps, execute the steps. I didn't see the underlying story or drama to it. I mean, I, a little bit, because the music has it. But, you know, to me, it was just run and stop on center, run and stop further front, turn around, go to your partner, I, you know, and he was trying to make sure that those little in-between moments were, were interesting. You know, doing PK arabesque, I could do PK arabesque and make it look nice. But, you know, the in-between stuff. Um, there's a section where there are these long, slow lifts in Grand Chate and Padishah. And he's, as we were doing him, he said, you know, everybody does these in a, the lifts making a diamond pattern. It's not a diamond pattern. It's side to side. And I thought, well, why are they then doing it in a diamond pattern? And Mr. B is saying, it's not a diamond pattern. Why, why doesn't he tell them and they do something different? I, I didn't understand. But on the other hand, I was being lifted. I couldn't control where the guy went. 
so we did it in a diamond pattern. And he said that to me alone. I think we were going over it alone or something. And then I was back with a partner. And, um, and I actually found when I staged the ballet that it made more sense to do it in a diamond pattern. And I, I feel a little um, remiss that I don't teach it that way because that's what Balmachine said. But there's so much music and the diamond pattern fills up the time more easily. And it, it, it's hard to make the angles look right and put the ballerina at a good angle. That's what's hard. But since everybody did it in a diamond pattern when he was alive and he never insisted doing it another way, I guess that's also why I, I still stage it in a diamond pattern. And Meryl, do you have any particular memories from your first performances of diamonds? The thing I remember is overture, um, when nobody's on the stage and the principals are standing in their opposite corners waiting to come on. And of course I was there on the first note of the, well before the overture. And then the overture started and, and Jean-Pierre wasn't in the wing. And there are these four phrases and we enter on the fourth phrase and, and he wasn't there and he wasn't there and he wasn't there. And he, I was like, am I, you know, I've just learned this and what, what am I gonna do if he doesn't come out? And of course he came out at the last second and he was there and it was fine, but it unnerved me a little bit. After that first performance, Mr. B said, who rarely complimented anybody about anything, said to me, excellent dear. And I was just, my God, here I was, this young thing. Uh, and that he said, excellent to me after doing Suzanne's role in Diamonds for the first time. I just, I couldn't believe it. But I got my comeuppance a little later, uh, not from Mr. B, but from Kibby, my who's my husband. And uh, he wasn't my husband then, but we were together a lot. And he was watching all my performances. And uh, it was kind of early in our relationship. And later he said, he, you know, I, I was boasting to him, Mr. B said it was excellent. And isn't that fantastic? And uh, he said, he said that? Really? He said, I thought you looked kind of funny. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh dear, oh dear. And um, as we talked about it, you know, he said that place right in the beginning where you have to leave the guy and walk up stage, he, he didn't know steps, so he couldn't explain really what was going on. And I said, yeah, I know, it's, it's so hard to get up there in time. And he said, well, you just look like you're you're running for the bus or something. It, 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 you, you have to present your back. You have to walk with grandeur. You have to present, you know, you just look like you're rushing to get to place and stopping. And, not, you know, it, you have to make it beautiful, make, show your back off. We're looking, at, we're looking at you. And that was kind of the beginning of starting to think about the role and the, the inner meaning behind the role, the inner drama in the role. I didn't have a long time to learn it and work on it. Um, probably a week. And I just was trying to do the steps and not fall on my face, you know, and, um, and cope with, a, you know, cope with the partnering. I wasn't used to being partnered much. And 
uh, I had so many other things on my mind. Seeing the, the underlying emotional story there was not one of them, I can tell you. And it took me a while. I didn't, Diamonds was a ballet that I didn't kind of clue into easily. It wasn't obvious to me. But that comment uh, once made me help my dancing in general and made me start thinking about the role a little bit more. And Meryl, one of the partners that you worked with so closely on Diamonds was Sean Lavery. And could you share with us a little bit about how you grew in that partnership with Sean and particularly in how you approached Diamonds? I had done a few performances of Diamonds uh, in 74. And then in 75, Suzanne Farrell came back to the company and I stopped doing Diamonds because it was her role and Valentine cast her. And I started doing emeralds. But then when Sean Lavery joined the company, I believe it was 77 or 78. I'm not exactly sure, but around there. And then suddenly I had a tall partner who could work with me. And it allowed Peter Martins to dance with Suzanne, but it then allowed me to have a partner to dance um, diamonds with for Sean. And he, you know, so we kind of worked on it together as he learned it. And then the two of us spent a lot of time trying to figure out the technical requirements to make it smooth and easy. And because Sean and I started dancing a lot together in a lot of different ballets at that point in time, I think we got, he got to know my dancing and my strengths and weaknesses. And I began to trust him more. And he was an excellent partner when he arrived. And I was accustomed to the kind of working too hard in the pas de deux. And Sean kept saying to me, let me do it. Just let me do it. It will be easier. And I finally learned that that was true. <laughs> and, you know, but he was helping me understand that. And then um, because we danced together a lot, it, I began to, to learn those skills. And I don't think we ever talked about diamonds, about mood or anything. It just kind of evolved as, um, as we ironed out the technical problems. And there are quite a few technical tricky places there. Meryl, you had a really amusing story about helping Sean with diamonds early in his career. The company was on tour. We were in Syracuse and Suzanne and uh, Peter were supposed to be doing diamonds that night. And as Peter was, I don't know if he was warming up or I don't know, suddenly his back went out. He couldn't move. He was screaming in pain. It was clear. He was not doing diamonds that night. So what to do? And Sean maybe had learned some of it, but he certainly didn't know the finale. It was vague in his mind what the steps were. So during Emeralds, we went into the studio and I started rehearsing with him and going over the pas de deux and, and teaching him the finale and trying to make it so that he could get out there doing the ballet with Suzanne. So his mind was filled with steps and he went out in the scherzo, which is the, you know, the steps are easy to remember, but his brain, I think, was somewhere else thinking of probably what's coming next in the finale. And he was doing this manage of coupe chate, coupe chate, fuerte into attitude. And as he came around the corner, just about to exit, or maybe the stage was small and, you know, with his long legs, he couldn't make the corner. I don't know what it was, but he was off balance when he landed. And the only thing he could do was land, do a somersault, 
and he came up relevating in arabesque, and then it was right near the wing, and then disappeared. And we all in the <laughs> wing we were howling. And he was like, "Can you believe I did a somersault in diamonds?" <laughs> <laughs> but it was just one of those things, you know. And the fact that he was out there doing the ballet and partnering Suzanne with no rehearsal and no, not really knowing the ballet was, you know. And I don't. The audience didn't seemed to react. They, I don't know if they really realized that it was this bizarre thing that happened. Anyway, he saved the day. Sean saved the day. <laughs> and Meryl, in, in some of the technical aspects of the choreography, what were some moments that were particularly challenging or that you particularly enjoyed? Because you were such a brilliantly technical dancer. I loved the beginning of the scherzo. I loved that falling arabesque and the little walks on point and, uh, and the circle step that follows that. And there was a dilemma about what step to do. Uh, you know, I was taught sauté pas de chasse, new arabesque turn. And later when Suzanne um, was helping people that were staging the ballet, she said it's forte arabesque. And Kay did arabesque turn. I was taught arabesque turn. So that's what I tend to teach. Um, I don't, I haven't heard it from Suzanne's mouth that it's Fuerte Arabesque. I don't, I'm guessing that, that that's what it is. But I liked that circle step. It was hard, but I liked it. Um, and there's something, there's a love-hate relationship with those développés that pull off and, uh, and fall because it feels great when they work. And, but it feels like you clunk down when it doesn't work. <laughs> It doesn't feel very nice. So that's kind of, you know, you'd work to, to try and make those really drawn out and controlled. And usually the third one worked and then the rest didn't. <laughs> that was my pattern. <laughs> and those développés have a wonderful port de bras where the back arm almost outlines and frames the beautiful headpiece that the ballerina wears. It's hard to get that right. Like you're touching the back of your headpiece is so beautiful. It's like you're drawing attention to all those beautiful jewels. At the same time, you're pulling, I, I don't know, it's hard to, it's like an, almost like pulling a bow and arrow a little mm. bit more with rotated shoulders. I don't know, but it's a very distinctive port de bras, which is hard to get right. Mm. I had trouble getting it right. And, and uh, there was one day I was talking to Renee Stopanol, who was in the core with me and a good friend of mine. And, and she suddenly just did that movement. I said, Renee, wait, wait, Renee, do that again. I've got you. You make, did that perfectly. I've got to see what, you know, what I'm doing is different than what you're doing. We stood there in front of the mirror and I, not that I got it maybe as well as she did, but I finally understood how much the shoulders were a part of it. <laughs> well, and in her book, Suzanne talks about how she was thinking, even as the ballet was being made before it had been costumed, she knew that there would be these jeweled headpieces and stuff. And so she thought, oh, I'm going to do an arm and show off my headpiece. And it wasn't even something Balanchine had asked her to do, but he didn't say he didn't like it. And so she kept it. And so it's fun yeah, yeah. that theatrical instinct she had to show off the headpiece then became a really signature port bras for diamonds. Right. Which is so fun. And of course, now that other companies have different headpieces, some of them have different costume designs, you know? So they don't all have the same headpiece with all those jewels in the back. And it starts not making as much sense. But we still, I mean, I, we all still teach that. It's such a, it's become, you know, 
a trademark movement of the ballet, so you don't want to take it out, but it doesn't have the same relationship to the original Korinska headpiece. Did you have favorite moments in the ballet to dance? I guess I have a few. At Diamonds, when I danced it, I didn't appreciate. I don't know, it didn't feel... <sighs> Maybe I had the specter of Suzanne hanging over me, but I, I, I never felt really like I got it 100%. And um, it wasn't my favorite pas de deux to do, it really wasn't, um, which shocked everybody. Now that I stage it, um, I, I feel like I understand it better. And I actually had a, a little moment where I kind of thought, I had, I was teaching it at the Bolshoi and David Halberg, um, one of the cast, but he wasn't there when I taught it to the, the majority of the dancers that were gonna do it. And so I had to start teaching him separately. And the ballerina that he was working with had a performance that night and couldn't rehearse. And so I was walking through it with him to help him with the sequence and just walking and just feeling, I, I thought, oh, this is glorious. I would love to do this now. <laughs> And I understand it better. I think I could bring, you know, more, uh, more inner spirit, more inner drama to it. But it's too late now. And Meryl, as you came to understand the role more and more, how did you then start to envision and think about the different sections for the ballerina, the pas de deux, the scherzo, the polonaise? Well, the, the pas de deux was the main main thing I thought about, really. And... To me, the woman was clearly someone special. So in my mind, she was a Zarina. And the man was somebody coming to court her or meet with her and win her over, but she wasn't necessarily interested in having a man court her. She, she, was, she was this mysterious, you know, outwardly, outwardly cool, maybe fiery inside, <laughs> cool on the outside. Throughout the pas de deux, she accepts his guidance, she accepts it, she gets more and more comfortable with him, and then suddenly she gets a little afraid and she runs away. And then she accepts it again. So it's it's very much, I'm going toward him emotionally, I'm retreating, I'm protecting myself, I'm going toward him, I'm retreating. When I was staging the ballet for the first time, which was for the Bolshoi Ballet, I just happened to be reading a biography of Catherine the Great, who had all these secretive affairs because she was married to, to someone that was um, incompetent in many ways. And uh, she needed her emotional and, and spiritual life and, and a romantic life. And so she would have these men that were in the government sometimes, but they had these hidden, hidden trysts. And I kept thinking, this is, this is her. So often she's in public and she has to remain remote from him. But then there are moments where she opens up to him and then she has to be remote again. And then I thought, I don't know if there's any relationship, uh, but that was an idea that came to me. And then in the scherzo, what was the the dynamic or the emotion you felt that the ballerina? Um, I, I kind of felt that was freedom. You know, nobody was around, nobody, she could be on her own, she could be her own personality. And it was, you know, Suzanne was very free in the way she danced. 
everything off balance and falling. And it was like the rules of formality were removed. You could kind of throw yourself into this and then you were supposed to be off balance and devil pay and fall, fall in control, but fall, fall. I love that the kind of the falling arabesque coming in and, and the little walks on point, it was so musical. So to me, the scherzo was freedom. And then the, the finale, it was sort of like, we're back in court, I'm in front of everybody, I have to mind my manners, I have to be grand, I have to be courtly, I have to be the example, I have to lead everybody, I have to, you know, they're around me and they're relating to me, but I'm it. And then, you know, that kind of is like, some of his other ballets where, you know, or Sleeping Beauty, you know, the, it, it's the wedding, it's the formality, it's theme and variations, it's the formality of all of that. The romant, any romantic feeling you had, you know, it's none of that anymore. It's just, it's grandeur and these big group following you and, uh, and the grand, that finale in all those, his big tutu ballads, you know, Symphony and C, theme and variations and, and diamonds too. I mean, the, the way he, takes all those people and then finally in the end brings them all together doing the same steps is just unbelievable. In her autobiography, Holding On To The Air, Suzanne Farrell talks about that reality of diamonds being the last of Balanchine's full-scale tutu ballets. And so that really goes with what you've just said about how it's the summation of ideas that he'd previously explored in Symphony and C, in Theme and Variations, both of which are ballets that you also danced. And, um, could you say a little bit more about that, that, that reality of the, the tutu ballets and the, the sense of court and the patterns and the building to a grand finale? Yeah, I, it's funny. I never, when I was dancing Diamonds, I never really thought about a connection to Symphony and C or a theme. Um, and in many ways, I still feel they're quite different, except for this finale that that has such complication in it incredible patterns incredible dynamics between what the core the soloist and the principals are doing um and the, the polonaise of diamonds is so complicated and right in the beginning it's even asymmetrical and how did he figure all that out it's just to me it's just mind-blowing what he did um but then when he gets that slow, when we all finally get together in the end with that grand, slow music, it's spine tingling. No matter where I am, whether I'm staging it or watching it or dancing it, it's just like, oh, this is, what a moment this is. And then it gets faster and even more dynamic and builds and builds and builds and, builds and ah! big huge crescendo <laughs> you can't believe he could have built it anymore and he does <laughs> and it's the same in symphony and C, the same in theme and variations you know it builds and builds and builds and then and then that final thing is just you just feel overwhelmed with with the beauty of it and the complexity of it and the power of of, of all those bodies moving like that and it just hits you in your soul somewhere I, I don't know where, but it does. <laughs> it's like balancing as orchestrator, architect, and poet all at the same time. All together, exactly. Very well said. <laughs> Meryl, thank you so much. This has been a rich, rich discussion of jewels, and thank you. <laughs>
So. Well, it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Silas. Thank you so much. Here ends part one. The conversation on diamonds continues with me and Sarah Mearns in part two, which is available now.